please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 13. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is God's word. We would expect a God who created the universe to create it for selfish purposes. And that's exactly what we see in the Babylonian creation story. The god Marduk declared that he created the world so that the gods could have slaves. The creator has the right to make the world for himself. The creation serves the creator, not the other way around. The clay doesn't tell the potter what it should be. The potter forms the clay into what he wants it to be. Yet we see that the God of the scripture is selfless. He didn't create so he could have slaves. He created so that we could know him and experience the intimacy that he has within the Godhead. God the Father selflessly sent his son into the world. Jesus selflessly put aside his glory for us to become a man. He selflessly took our rejection and abuse because of his love. He selflessly gave his life for us. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, even as he's about to face execution, he selflessly prays for the Father's glory and for our welfare. Even his request for his own glory is so that he might glorify the Father. Why is our God so selfless? Because it's in his nature. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit have been in a self-giving, other-centered relationship from before the world was ever made. That's why God can, John can say, God is love. God being in three persons makes all the difference in his nature. God being in three persons makes all the difference for our lives. The creator determines what life is. And he creates it to reflect himself. 
as George Marsden wrote, it's consistent with the nature of a God who is essentially loving to create a world of beings and communicate the love and delight that he had in himself to them. If we want to understand and experience life as it was meant to be, we need to turn to our, eye, our eyes to the Trinity. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today with your Spirit, for it's only your Spirit that can open our eyes and our hearts to grasp and to apply these truths for our lives. Wherever we are, Father, if we do not know you yet, we pray that these words of Jesus today would call everyone who doesn't know you to himself. Those who are believers, may we have a, a beautiful vision of the life you've called us into. Moved today among us. Amen. It was common for dying or departing leaders, prophets, rabbis to draw their disciples together to leave one final teaching before they departed. That teaching time would end with a prayer. Jesus follows that pattern in the upper room. In John chapter 13 through 16, we see he's teaching his disciples, preparing them for the time he's going to leave. Now in John 17, he concludes that evening with prayer. But this is a very special prayer. It displays his desire and love for God and his passion for us. As Travis showed us last week, he began his prayer expressing his desire that his glorification would glorify the Father. In our passage this morning, his focus turns to his disciples and to us. His prayer is going to show us that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is the paradigm for life itself. The dynamic union between the Father and Son is the blueprint for the life we are to have with God and with one another. What the Father and Son have experienced forever is exactly what God wants us to experience with him and one another. So we'll first look at that eternal relationship among the Father and Son, and then we'll look at what our relationship should be with God and each other. So we begin exploring that relationship between the Father and the Son. As I've said many times from this pulpit, we can envision the relationship between them as a divine party where they have perfect joy. So the question becomes why, if they have perfect joy among themselves, they would create anything? The answer is found in a question to us. If we were having a party and we had everyone we wanted at that party and it was the perfect party, why would we invite our neighbors to it? And so they could enjoy what we're enjoying. That's why God created us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said it a little more profoundly. The only reason God would have had for creating us 
was not to get cosmic love and joy because he already had it, but to share it. So what takes place at the divine party? Well, at the very beginning of this book, uh, John gives us some insight into it in verse 18 of the first chapter when he wrote, No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Actually, at the Father's side is not the best translation for that word. The word should read, the only God who is in the Father's bosom, he's made him known. He is giving a description of an extremely intimate relationship between the Father and Son. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. So you see, that's intimate. There's only three people I allow, would allow to rest on my bosom. It's my wife and my two little grandchildren. I would even find it strange to have my sons rest their head on my bosom. And you would find it very strange if I came over to you and rested my head <laughs> on your bosom. Why? Because it, it's, it's so extremely intimate. And so this passage says, the son not only rests his head, but is in the father's bosom. That love is mentioned later in Jesus' prayer in verse 24 when he talks about The love that the Father had for him before the world was ever made. When we read the life story of Jesus in Scripture, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father leaps off the pages. The beginning of Jesus' prayer also draws out a second feature of their relationship their mutual glorification. The Father prayed, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the foundation of the world. Before the world ever existed, the Father and Son lived in glory. The Father glorified the Son. Jesus put that aside as he stepped into the earth. He's asking to that, for that to be restored. They sought the glory of each other from eternity. And as Jesus entered this earth, Jesus carried out the Father's mission to save the world so that the Father might be glorified in Jesus. John chapter 8, twice, Jesus tells his opponents, he doesn't seek a glory. The Father wants his glory. That love and glory relationship brought the Father and Son perfect joy. A third feature of their relationship that's stressed in the prayer is their mutual mission. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. They're one in purpose and mission. God so loved the world, he sent his son. His son so loved the world that he took that mission upon himself. No matter what the cost. They're one in their passion to bring the divine love to us. 
to bring us into that divine party. A fourth aspect of their relationship is their mutual sharing of us. This is captured in verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The same idea is repeated in verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. So think of a family and how each parent loves and cherishes their children. Karen and I love our sons, our daughter-in-law, our grandchildren, and we want them to love us. In fact, I love my wife Karen so much that I want my grandchildren to love her more than they love me. That's the relationship among the father and son. They share us in their love for us and their desire for us to love them. But notice, this is reserved for those who have kept God's word. Now, it's not saying that God doesn't love the world. Later in the passage, it sounds like that when he calls about taking the disciples out of the world to himself and his love for them. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's no question he loves the world, but there's a different kind of relationship with those who have kept his word. God wants and offers his love to all of us. But if we don't accept that, if we reject that, then we, we don't belong to him. That's our choice, not his. Another question that this verse raises is when it says the disciples have kept God's word. During the time of this prayer, we were wondering how well the disciples were going to keep God's word because they desert him. But what this is talking about isn't that they obey every aspect of God's word at this point. What it's saying is ultimately the word singular of God is the fact that the Father sent the Son. That the Son has the Father's authority. The world was rejecting that. They were saying Jesus was a blasphemer. But these kept God's word. They believed God had sent Jesus. They believed that his word was God's word. His way was God's way. His call was God's call. And that their lives belonged to him no matter how much they faltered later. This window into the Trinity shows us the relationship within the Godhead, that it's one of eternal love and eternal glory, and that they're one in their mission and one in their possession of us. So since we are made in God's image, naturally, we would expect that these same qualities would be in our relationship with God. And that's what we see in Jesus' prayer. The relationship between the Father and Son is a paradigm for our lives. The Father and Son loved each other. So life is about receiving God's love and then returning it by loving him back. 
We who belong to him are a part of his family where his love is shared. It's this relationship that's highlighted by Jesus when he prayed. He'd given us eternal life. And that eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. To know God is not about knowing facts about God. It speaks about relationship. If someone were to ask me, um, do you know Dave from your high school days? I would say, Dave, Dave, who? You know, oh, Dave F. Um, you know, I think he was in my algebra class. Yeah, I know him. That's not what we're speaking about here. <laughs> it's more like the question, do you know Karen Daggett? And I said, yes, I know Karen Daggett. <laughs> do we know God? Is he an acquaintance? No. Eternal life is to know him in that deep intimacy. How deep is this knowledge and love of God? Jesus prayed this. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world would know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Zero in on that last phrase. That you have loved them even as you've loved me. We will never understand the height and breadth and length and depth of God's love. His love for us is the same as his love for Jesus. His love for Jesus is intimate, so his love for us is intimate. His love for Jesus is unconditional, so his love for us is unconditional. His love is self-sacrificial for Jesus, so his love is self-sacrificial for us. His love desires the best for Jesus. His love desires the best for us. Earlier I spoke of the intimacy of the father and son as the son being in the bosom of the father. John wants us to understand that that's God's desire for his relationship with us. And he pictures it in the upper room. In John 13, 23, it says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Once again, they, they translated Jesus' side with the word is his bosom. John is picturing the intimacy that I wouldn't want John to have with me, <laughs> resting his head on Jesus' bosom. That's what God wants with us. Jesus also draws us into the realm of his glory. John 17, 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Just as the Father is glorified in the Son, so the Son is glorified in the believers. And the glory goes both ways. The Son glorifies us. Note in verse 22. The glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus shares his glory with us. The disciples were glorifying Jesus 
they would glorify him much better when the Holy Spirit came and they began to, to live and walk in the footsteps of Christ. They are glorified, glorified much better when they see Jesus Christ. When the fruition of time comes, Romans 8 says that we are glorified. 1 John says that when we see him, we will be like him. There's glory in the father and son's relationship. There's glory that they bring us into as well. Us glorifying them. God, God glorifying us. Now, what this means for us today is that we are to glorify God. And a key way to glorify God is to live in such a way that confounds the people around us. In the first century, the people were confounded by a ragtag group of fishermen, blue-collar workers, and a hated tax collector because they spoke with such wisdom, they lived with such commitment and such faithfulness. The world was confounded by an upcoming religious leader who traded in the stepping stone to... Uh, greatness in the eyes of man to follow one who he hated and whose disciples he persecuted. The world was confounded in the first century by Christians who would go into the Colosseum facing certain death with peace and often with joy. In the play Man of La Mancha, Aldonza is confounded by the words, the attitude, and the actions of Don Quixote. And she sings a song, Why do you do the things you do? Why do you do these things? When we live our lives in a way where those around us ask that question about us, and we point them to Jesus, that's how we glorify him. We also share in the mission of God. Verse 12. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, focus in on the last half of that verse. Keep them in your name. Your name, a person's name, spoke of their identity. That's why Abram's name is changed to Abraham, Jacob's to Israel, Simon's to Peter. When we live according to his name, when we live out his name, we are living according to his identity, and the identity that Jesus puts his finger on in this passage is Holy Father. Live set apart from the world. Live holy lives. That's a big part of our mission. A second aspect of that mission is found in the words that they may be one, even as we are one. You see the shadow of the Trinity there? They, that we may be one, just as 
the Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son have incredible intimacy. We are to have that kind of intimacy with one another. They champion and glorify, treasure one another. We are to champion, lift up, and treasure one another. They share life, and we should share life. As Scripture says to the church, encourage one another, support one another, give to one another, pray for one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And it goes on and on about our relationship. Church is not about attending on Sunday mornings and maybe some other Bible studies. It is about a deep, intimate relationship with one another where life is shared. And when life is shared like that, it points to a third aspect of the mission of God. The world will know. Twice in this passage, it says, when we are one, the world will know that God sent Jesus. And that's our mission. To let the world know that God sent Jesus. That God's word is his word. Or his word is God's word. His call is God's call. His life is God's life. And that we should follow him. So we've seen that our lives should reflect the dynamic union between father and son. Verse 13 confirms this. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He doesn't just say, I want them to have joy. He says, I want them to have my joy. And what's Jesus' joy? It's not the things of this world. It's his relationship with the Father. That's what he wants us to have. To experience, that's where we will find joy. In John 15, Jesus says something very similar. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What were the things he had said that is to bring us this joy? Abide in me. And that means that we are fully dependent for our whole source of life from Jesus. That the core needs of our lives are filled not by the things around us, but by Jesus himself. He says, abide in my love. Abide in my word. When you abide in me, you will bear fruit and it will glorify God. Do you see the triune relationship and what Jesus is teaching them? That's where joy is. Is found. The essence of life is not our existence or our biology. It's not our experiences or our actions. It's not our philosophies or moral choices. These are pieces of life. They are not the essence of life. The essence of life is about intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit and reflecting that intimacy to the world and the way we live with one another and the way we live with God. Jesus said that he has given us eternal life and that the eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. In other words, 
the essence of life is to enter into that divine relationship between the Father and Son and to live it out with one another. Our Father, we thank you for this word. And what's very exciting is that Jesus didn't just teach this to disciples. He prayed it for his disciples. He prayed it for us. Lord, answer his prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.